We want to welcome all of our listeners to the 17th episode of Minority Report with Eric and Corell. Each episode, we talk with real operators and leaders in digital media. Today, we're joined by Adrian D'Souza, who is actually the SVP of Revenue Operations and Client Success at Intersection. Let's jump in and get to know Adrian. Adrian, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on uh, on the show. Thank you for joining us. And we're, we're excited to have you on. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing uh, at Intersection. So I run uh, effectively every function in the revenue organization other than the, the, the direct sellers. And so that is right from like overall strategy, including things like sales compensation, goaling uh, to... Uh, to you know, the Salesforce basically making sure Salesforce's dot uh, uh, com is working good, uh, well for their uh, for the for the sellers and every other user to pricing to um, you know effectively every other function to manage a robust business of a few hundred million dollars. So you're pretty busy these days, huh? Uh, I, I believe so. Yeah, they try to keep me busy. Uh, that's fantastic. But it's all, it's uh, all good, right? It's uh, as far as I'm concerned. Being in this industry, you don't want to be sitting around doing nothing. It's really all about basically right. learning that's, and doing that's stuff. Right. That's absolutely right. Uh, that, that's fantastic. Tell us uh, a little bit about your background. Uh, where are you from? Where were you born? And um, where, where where were you raised? Yeah, that's a great question. So the uh, I was born in India uh, in a uh, in a city called for a few million people called Pune. It's very near Mumbai, which a lot of more people are, f- are familiar with, and uh, uh, it's kind of interesting. At a certain level, I grew uh, basically. I uh, so I, I was India in India until uh, effectively until my graduation, and then I moved out to the United States. Just in terms of background, uh, you know, most people associate uh, India with Hinduism, but uh, one of the things I'd call out is is like you know. Uh, I actually grew up in a very traditional Catholic family, uh, which is part of 2% of the population of India. And I, uh, one of the other interesting things that people find about my background is, is, is that I actually, you know, my first to 12th grade, I was in a Jesuit Catholic mm. school. And so one of the things I explain about my, uh, you know, about what drives me is, is a lot of guilt, Catholic <laughs> parents, as well as, uh, uh, as well as, you know, Jesuit uh, upbringing, uh, Jesuit school upbringing. You know, that, that's fascinating. Uh, how do you think that sort of shaped your identity over the years? So, uh, you know, I think it's uh, in in relation to both the Catholic upbringing as well as the uh, the the schooling. It just uh, instills in you that sense of discipline. Like, uh, you know, a lot of folks are intimidated by things, and the way I structure almost everything I approach. Uh, when it's a new thing is is just thinking in terms of trying to trying to break it down and figure out you know how do you problem solve whatever the challenge is and I think the discipline that I had in my uh, growing up really helps me in that which is it's not about effectively like oh my god whatever it may be but it's like think analytically break it down into small portions and figure out how you're going to try to mm-hmm. effectively get around that challenge and so I think that's it's really been helpful in my uh, career uh, having that background that's pretty cool how did you sort of move into your uh, your area of expertise? You've had a tremendous background working with great companies and have accomplished a lot of uh, really big things. Um, how, how did you sort of enter your your career path? With- Frankly, I'm humbled. I, I think a little bit of luck, but let's walk through it. I'm humbled to have had the opportunity uh, I've had to be, uh, you know, 
specific. I, th I actually think, and this is something we'll get into later on the mentorship front, but it is literally like, you, you know, it is trying to figure out what your path is. And so I started off, so I, I came to this country, did my MBA. So I have a background in engineering. I then uh, went to Virginia Tech and, and got an MBA and then joined a, a traditional hardware and software company. And I was in technical sales for the first couple of years and then in product management for the next few years. And my last product was effectively a, an embedded web server on a networking card. So a highly geeky technical product. I rolled out this product worldwide. It was phenomenal, a phenomenal success. But this was the late 1990s where the, uh, the web was taking off. San Francisco and the Bay Area was booming. And I kind of felt a little left out. I was, uh, this, this particular company was in Rhode Island. And uh, I felt I really wanted to be part of the, 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 the gold rush, so to speak, that was happening uh, in terms of, uh, um, you know, web companies that was taking place in the Bay Area. And so that's how I basically ended up in media, which is I ended up joining one of the, uh, the largest first ad networks that was very successful in its time. Everyone knows about DoubleClick and the double platform and the DoubleClick ad network. Uh, this company, Flycast, uh, was... Uh, you know, one of the first uh, ad networks and arguably did a very good job of competing with DoubleClick. And so th that's where I moved, uh, you know, so, and just in terms of career progression, uh, product management, I went to uh, Flycast also and headed up a product uh, uh, for this large uh, ad network and then ended up ba basically going, uh, went through the dot-com bust, uh, which was pretty horrendous uh, out in uh, in the Valley but it was all about basically you just keep plugging away and really focused on trying to get to the right opportunity that would be my next opportunity. And I was lucky that, uh, you know, what is now CBS Interactive and those CNET networks uh, effectively came along and it was a great match for what I'd been doing. And so I joined them to be uh, effectively, again, head of uh, ad product. And so I did that for a, a little while uh, and then picked up ad, technical ad operations along the way. And so, frankly, had a great ride, was happy, was, as you notice until this point, except for uh, Flycast, you know, uh, effectively was really, you know, had been in premium publishing, was very happy at CNN Networks. And then, as I joke about it, uh, this tiny startup out of Mountain View came calling. Uh, we may have heard of, you may have heard of it called Google. Um, and uh, Google, you know, just to give you a kind of a snapshot of uh, how, uh, you know, Google was in those days, Google was an entirely search company. It had uh, acquired, you know, YouTube a year earlier. And very soon they realized that they were a search company and they didn't have operational expertise. And so we'll get into that later, but someone gave them my name and said, you need to go talk to Adrian D'Souza. And so they came calling. And so nine months later, I ended up joining Google. And this is the first time I actually stopped doing product management focused purely on operations. And so I worked in... Um, Worked at Google for a few years, built, uh, you know, uh, effectively the YouTube service uh, service layer on the monetization side, as well as uh, also for the Google Display Network. A few weeks after joining, I agreed to do the same thing for the Google Display Network. So it was a wild ride. Uh, uh, you know, a few years growing, uh, growing from a very small team to a very large team, growing effectively, building out a global footprint, and building out the underlying infrastructure that's made, you know, I believe YouTube and uh, the Google Display Network to what it is right now from a monetization capability. 
And then uh, just to quickly wrap up, uh, I went to a company called Quancast where I ran global operations again. It's a company in the pure data and programmatic space. And then ended up at Intersection. And the you know Intersection was an interesting one where I'd been pure in pure digital up till this point, wanted to try to do something different. And Intersection came along, was an out of home. And the crazy thing is what it struck me was I could do effectively kind of what I'd been doing, but in a new vertical of advertising. And so uh, that what struck me is like it was a, uh, and uh, and the one thing I'd call out is try not to repeat the mistakes of the past. Like, you know, uh, if digital had taken years and years to evolve, could we accelerate the process based on learnings and kind of try to do the same thing for digital out of home? And so that's kind of where uh, where I am right now. Wow. Great, great summary. How, how many years now in the space? Um could I not talk about that? It's been a, 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 listen, listen, we both have been Eric and I have both been in the space for a long time. So you're you're in you're in great company here. Just just around twenty years. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, so obviously twenty years. You wouldn't do uh, something for twenty years if you didn't love it, right? So what what do you love about the space, the the ad tech space? I guess. I like the fact that we're so screwed up, and translate that into the fact that. Uh, you know, we still haven't got things figured out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in you know, most of my background has been spent, frankly, even when I was in the services uh, uh, area, uh, you know, literally effectively defining how can we scale business? How can we build uh, systems? How can we automate processes? And so that at a some level, mm-hmm. you know, is where I bring my product management background. I always say, even though I'm a services leader, you know, from a mindset perspective, I, uh, I, I manage great big teams, great teams, and I'm very, you know, all about the people, but my mindset is all about uh, effectively how do you ultimately engineer yourself out of a problem versus mm-hmm. throw people at a problem. Mm-hmm. And I believe mm-hmm. that's a that's a that's an approach and a, a mindset difference versus sometimes other folks in the business. And so what I really like and what I've seen so far has been that while we've come a long way, yeah, uh, we still have. You know, I think a long way to go in terms of really streamlining how this business will work. And so that's what excites me. It's it's all about how do you effectively get to the point where this business could really run smoothly without, frankly, the high error rates that we sometimes see and also effectively, uh, you know, really servicing our customers to the best of our ability. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, switching topics just a little bit here, I want to talk about diversity and inclusion sure. within our space, right? So curious to get your thoughts on just sort of where we are as an industry with respect to to DNI and and maybe some things you can think of to improve it get get better at it you know so i would say that you know and you at a certain level my snapshot is you know effectively you know typically the industry events i go to mm-hmm. and i will actually say that i have definitely seen improvements so mm-hmm. we're certainly not where we were uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago I would agree i've with seen that. I've seen a lot of change, mm-hmm. and so we've made progress. I think we could do a lot more, and you know, part of it we could get into it. But like philosophically, where I come from is is you know, I think it's remo- re- removing the the conscious and unconscious biases mm-hmm. of a lot of folks who are currently in the industry. And I re- truly believe that if you can remove those biases, it opens up a whole new world in terms of who you recruit and how you think about basically actually getting talent into your organization. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately what I believe solves for actually getting uh, getting to a very truly diverse and uh, inclusive, basically, workplace. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Cool, cool. 
Another question in, in terms of, of work-life balance, right? We yeah. ask we ask every guest on this show about, you know, how do they sort of maintain what they have to do from a day-to-day perspective? Obviously, you're super busy, right? But you also have a personal life as yeah. well, too, right? And, you know, I, I personally don't believe that there's such thing as, as work-life balance. I feel like, you know, your life is your life and you, you spend your time how you choose to spend your time. But just curious to get your, your specific thoughts on, on work-life balance. It's a great point. And frankly, you know, I'm very passionate as, as it may come across about the work I do. But ultimately, to me, frankly, it's all about the family. And so uh, I've been lucky and blessed that uh, uh, in terms of the fact that I've been able to really have work-life balance. But let me define that, at least from my perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. You know, I actually think that uh, the one thing that I would advise anyone, especially as you're thinking of career progression, right? Like when you start off early in your career, you know, it's okay to think about your job as this is a nine to five job, right? But I honestly don't believe per- this is personally that you can actually, as you go, you're pursuing uh, upward mobility and you're trying to basically get a, get ahead in terms of your career, mm-hmm. that you can actually assume that you can just cut off effectively when it hits five o'clock. So personally, one of the things that is very important to me that I try to qualify is with any organization that I, if, I, if, if I'm moving to is the fact that, you know, is there not necessarily, you know, it depends on what you mean by work-life balance, but my definition is, am I allowed to spend the quality of time with my family? Mm. And so here's mm. how I deal with work-life balance. I try to leave at a decent hour in the evening. And uh, by the way, in the morning, what I love about New York is is that I we live in Manhattan, and something I was never able to do on the West Coast is I actually quite often would split walking my kids to uh, to school, drop them off at school, and then catch my bus and get to work on time. Love that. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have that mm-hmm. flexibility on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And in the evening, I try to basically get home and help with the kids, uh, putting them down, feeding them dinner, helping them with a little bit of reading and homework. And effectively, after that, when the kids go down, that's when I then have the opportunity, if I have any work pending, to pick my laptop up and actually get stuff done. And so that's how I deal with work-life balance. Mm -hmm. To me, it's more about balance in terms of I need to have quality time and dedicated time with my family, and I'm very focused on that. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Awesome point. Awesome point. It's fascinating. I, I mean, I think that's something that Corell and I could relate to very much, and and those are tremendous uh, real life experiences. And and uh, are, are you sort of passing on those things to some folks? Do you feel like you're sort of mentoring others? Yes, I do. So actually, it's kind of funny, but uh, uh, one just within my uh, w- within my team, you know, I all I will always make myself available for anyone. And, uh, you know, in fact, uh, just philosophically, one of the things I kind of try to run my business and run my, my teams based on principles rather than detailed guidebooks. Mm. Uh, uh, because at the end of the day, again, with a fast changing industry, I don't think you could ever cover everything in a manual. And so one of the things I tell my team is, is like open door. The other thing I tell the team is we're all in this together. And so what that really translates into is like, Hey, anytime you need me, I'm there for you. You can come by. Uh, uh, and and all grab time on my calendar, and I'm happy to spend time talking to you. But not just that, like you know, uh, 
I think uh, Carol and I are a very, uh, you know, fond of and a great co- uh, a person in the industry is Rob Beeler. Yep. And he's uh, introduced a couple of things. One, he's had industry panels within New York City about basically mentorship and guidance. And I've uh, featured on those panels as well as he, uh, you know, he had this built out this mentorship program and I signed up to actually mentor uh, a couple of folks. And yep. so I actually will do regular uh, you know, sessions with them as well as effectively whenever they do have a question or something, always open to shoot me an email and I'll I'll get back to you with my quick response on how you should deal with the situation. So again, I feel humbled. You say I've I've had a interesting career, but to me, you don't get to that uh, career unless you want to give back because you also want to ultimately focus on a few things. You want to focus on people who pick up the b- baton as you take off to do something else. You want to build future uh, layers of leadership as well as you want to give back to the community. And so for me, that's very, very important. Oh, that's great. Tremendous. Like, you know, we always love learning from our guests, what they, what they read, what they follow to stay informed. What are you consuming, you know, daily or weekly that helps you stay informed about the industry or just what are you spending your time? And that could also, you know, lead into what are you listening to? Not just sort of reading. Well, we know he listens to this podcast. <laughs> we love that. Sure. Uh, we love that. <laughs> you know, I mostly read, though, and I will yeah. say this, which is just like, it's probably going to come across as very boring, but I read the usual <laughs> uh, usual suspects. I read uh, Ad Exchanger. I read uh, Ad Age. And then I do read, I'm a business geek. Uh, and so I read like every possible business periodical I can get my hands on, uh, you know, including names that people probably don't read any longer, like Fortune and stuff like that. But like, you know, uh, Business Insider is one of my favorites mm-hmm. uh, and general news like New York Times and stuff like that. But I am a news and business news junkie. Uh, and so, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, as a result of it, uh, by the way, I also ha- I tend to have opinions on a lot of things. But that's because <laughs> I read a lot. Yeah. I read a lot. That's kind of like my source. And so, but it, it certainly helps me. I think it gives me a broader perspective because because I, I believe I'm so attuned to what's happening in the marketplace, whether it's in the stock market or otherwise, I'm able to relate a lot to then effectively when things happen in business, I'm able to relate to kind of like, okay, here's kind of potentially why this is happening. Right. And so I think mm-hmm. it gives me a good perspective. Excellent point. Yeah. Yeah. Business Insider has this daily email that I subscribe to. It's uh, the top 10 things you should know for the day. It's, yep. Yeah. I love that one. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Anyone coming into the space, what advice would you give them? 20 years of experience you have. Someone freshly new coming into the space, is there any sort of one or two tidbits you would give them for an advice perspective? You know, I, I would say one, uh, I learned that from someone I worked with in the past, but I'll use that phrase, buckle up, because it's a wild ride. Mm-hmm. As I said, we still haven't figured things out. Yeah. Yeah, and so I still think there's lots of potential, ample potential in the space mm-hmm. to keep uh, effectively adding value. And so... Uh, but it's going to be a lot of change. And so, by the way, that's one of the things I'd call out from my uh, talent building perspective. Mm-hmm. I actually, and I know it's been controversial at times, but I actually typically look for sharp analytical uh, generalists mm. versus folks with years and years of deep expertise mm-hmm. in one area. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why is this, to translate that into the ch- amount of change I uh, would rather, you know, by the way, that model is also referred to as general athletes uh, uh, in the workplace. And the reason why is is that you don't want someone who's so embedded in a particular function or thought process that they can't change when things change 
change around. And so so that's kind of the profile. And so that will lead to my other thing. We're moving from a world where I truly believe in the next five, 10 years, you know, like uh, hopefully I do believe a significant amount of manual processes will be automated. Mm-hmm. And so I do believe we're moving to a world where you know, operations folks will move to more the interpretation layer versus in, in the past they were the more the input layer or the yeah, the button yeah. pushing layer. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so to me, it is, you know, if to, if I were to give advice to people uh, who are studying in school or looking to get extra skills, I'd say focus on the data analysis piece. Like if you can basically pick up data analysis skills, go do that because we're moving to a world where data is going to explode. We will have a lot of systems that'll be able to compile them and put them together, but you still need smart, intelligent people to interpret the, the data and tell the business, this is what the data is telling and this is what you should do as a result. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that to me would be kind of like just in terms of kind of like advice in terms of people who are looking to enter the industry. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So, Adrian, one question I do have to ask you, have you ever been discriminated against in our in, in the industry? Not in our industry, but I have okay. a crazy story about it, okay. which is, is like, so this is my first job, which was the enterprise software and hardware company. Uh-huh. And the interesting thing is, so as I mentioned, I was in technical sales and then, uh, you know, moved into product management. But in the technical sales area, I was up so effectively for promotion to effectively manage a region. You know, it was a corporate sales program, so it was all out of headquarters. It was like a technical inside sales program. Yep. And I was turned down for effectively to manage a territory that included Utah. And just so you know, like from a KPI or metrics perspective, at the previous the the, the previous level, I was the one who had outstanding stats. Mm-hmm. So naturally I was very puzzled and I go to my ma- the ma- the hiring manager and say, well, why didn't I get this this promotion? Like on, on paper, on right. in terms of all the data, you have a you know, I I'm the guy who should have got it. And the response was well, because of your background, like uh, folks from Utah are probably not going to be find you acceptable. And it was interesting. By the way, this is still I'm this is my first job in this country. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I'm not used to like necessarily knowing this is discrimination. I just put it down to like whatever it is, whatever it is, and walked away. And that day at lunch, I was a little you know, a little quiet. So people asked me what happened, and I told them the story. And these were all American colleagues of mine, and yeah. they were like. Adrian, that's discrimination. You need to take it up with HR. And so, you know, I took it up with HR and, uh, uh, you know, and HR ended up definitely addressing it with the manager and I ended up getting a, you know, a, a prom- promotion very soon thereafter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it all worked out. But I think my lesson learned was, is like, you know, again, when you've been on the receiving end, it, it all it, it again opens up you up to the fact that you, whenever you're evaluating people, you need to make sure that you're not bringing any kind of again biases, whether conscious or unconscious, into yeah. evaluating those folks. And the, I guess that's my 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 take from that whole story. And then what what would what advice would you give to anyone that does face some level of discrimination about that? Like one of the first things that that I appreciated that you did was when you didn't get the job, you asked the question why, right? Right. And I feel like maybe enough people don't ask why, right? So I think that was good. But any other sort of advice you would give to someone that feels like they're being discriminated against? Yeah, so I would say they ask the question why with the hiring manager, try to get rationale. And then, you know, if you do have uh, evidence of, uh, of effectively of discrimination, absolutely take it up with your uh, with your HR department. I think it's really important. I personally believe life is too short to actually be just uh, 
taking it on the chin and just not dealing with it. So absolutely, you know, you should be address, trying to address it with the appropriate authorities within your company. Mm. So I would try to deal with it that way. Awesome. One little uh, fun question we have for you, right? Your phone, right? Give us your top three apps that you use outside of calendar and email. Again, you're going to find me very boring. <laughs> very boring. I have one interesting nugget after the three, but the three are uh, effectively the weather, the AccuWeather app. The second one is WhatsApp, which I think is okay. amazing, especially if you know a lot of people internationally. It still keeps me connected to a lot of people all over the world where you could not only text, but also do either calls or video chat. The third one is like an Uber or Lyft. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. it gets me around. So all very practical. The last one that's just become a little bit of an obsession over the summer, you you'll guys will find this funny, but uh, uh, my family, we, we rented a house in Cape Cod mm -hmm. and, you know, Cape the Cape has a shark problem. And so the crazy thing is, is I, I even <laughs> though I've left the Cape and I'm back in New York City, uh, they, they actually have a, a crowdsourced app called Sharktivity. Where it actually, with human sightings and tagged sharks, so they you, will give you warnings <laughs> as where sharks are so you don't take your family and your kids. And so, so the crazy thing is it's become like a, a guilty pleasure of mine. Like it still sends me <laughs> it still sends me alerts of where the sharks are. And even though I'm far away from... You are, you are tracking sharks. I'm How tracking sharks. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's really awesome, man. Well, listen, Adrian, man, thank you for joining us. This has been an awesome conversation. Anyone that's listening wants to get in touch with you uh, for mentorship or advice, how can they, how can they reach you? I would say uh, you connect with me on LinkedIn yeah. and mention the Minority Report. And if you do that, like uh, I will accept your invitation. <laughs> oh. I'm happy to connect and figure out an opportunity to give you any advice or, or mentorship. Wow! Wow! Yeah, there you go. I think we're gonna put that into the. Uh, into the future episodes uh, to get people to to mention Minority Report. Thank you for that advice. I like there. it. <laughs> That's we like it. it. <laughs> and for uh, anyone out there listening, of course, you can uh, follow and find Minority Report anywhere where you listen to podcasts, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google. Uh, certainly follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, thank you again, Adrian. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks.